Good morning. Everybody's doing well today, I assume. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, before I get started, I wanted to um, extend an invitation to all of you. And uh, that is um, for an open house that Sally and I are going to host at our home on December the 18th, 3 to 5 p.m. thereabouts. I mean, we're not Three o'clock is the start time. The end time is sort of flexible, right? Um, but we would like for all of you to come. Um, we would uh, just love to have a chance to kind of celebrate Christmas and to celebrate those in our church that have um, given of themselves over the past year and uh, just hang out together and have some food and uh, and just enjoy some time. So. Um, you are all welcome, and uh, please pass the word. I will be getting something out via email to let folks know the uh, the address, and you know, so you can get directions and so far. It's about 20 minutes from where we are right now, roughly, so not not too far. Uh, I will say we do have a fairly large dog, so if that freaks anybody out, we're going to try to keep him under control. He's not mean he's just exuberant we'll say <laughs> so um yeah he's just gabe uh, yeah brit brit spends time with him when uh, she's our house sitter when when we leave and she's probably got any number of stories she could tell that we've not even heard so it's probably better that way um, so anyway i will talk more about this but just wanted you all to know you're all most welcome to come and would love to have everybody um I'm going to go ahead and uh, didn't do this last week, but um, we have a practice here at the vineyard of having an Advent candle every Advent. And if you're not familiar with the Advent candle, there are four candles representing hope, which is what we talked about last week, peace, which is what we'll talk about this week, joy is the pink candle, which will be next week, and then finally love is the fourth week, and then the, the white candle is the Christ candle, which will light on New Year's Eve uh, as a symbol of Christ's coming. And so the Advent candle really is just a reminder of sort of what's to come, and it's a way to recognize the season of Advent that we're in right now. So uh, we're going to talk about peace this morning. And we're good to go. All right, well... <clears throat> I think most of you know that um, I grew up and lived until, I guess about 20, 30 years ago, in the state of Indiana. I am a proud Hoosier by birth. Um, and if you weren't familiar with uh, the dynamic of the state of Indiana, it is a basketball crazy state. All right? I don't, I'm sure the folks there would say the most fanatical. Kentucky probably right up there with them, several others perhaps as well. But, um, and the folks that live in Indiana really wear that passion for the game on their sleeve. And so when I was in high school, I worked in a grocery store and, uh, you know, just sacking groceries and stocking shelves and that sort of thing. And I can't tell you the number of times these sweet little old ladies would, would come up to me 
and they would look up, because I was well over six feet at this point, and they would ask me if I played basketball. And I was always glad that I could actually say yes, because I was afraid of what might happen if I had said no. Uh, I didn't know exactly what it, the response would be, but I was pretty sure it would be bad. You know, like some sort of tongue lashing or whatever. Um, but the thing was that in addition to my being tall, I was also a very shy kid, and I was very introverted. And so I didn't, uh, I didn't really have much self-confidence. So I just, you know, sort of was going through early part of life, sort of keeping to myself and not really um, having lots of friends and so forth, just because that's kind of who I was. But then, thanks to the right mix of genetics, thanks to Dr. James Naismith, who invented the game of basketball, thanks to some amount of athletic ability, and then, of course, thanks to a willingness to work. Oh, i got to turn it on. I started to feel like I was accepted. I don't know why. Every picture of me, I always have my mouth open. <laughs> I'm not sure why. At least I didn't have my tongue out the way Michael Jordan always seemed to. But this, this desire to feel accepted is something that I think everybody in this room shares. You know, nobody, nobody ever wants to feel like they're on the outside looking in. That's really kind of a painful place to be, isn't it? I would imagine that there are folks, maybe not any of you, maybe so, but there are certainly people that refuse to go back to their high school reunion simply because high school was a really painful time for them. And they just, they, you know, they didn't feel like they were accepted at all. And, you know, they don't want to relive that. It's like, well, I went through four years of that. Why would I want to go back? Right? So... You know, basketball was my ticket to feeling accepted. You know, I could be a tall, gawky kid, but if you were a tall, gawky kid and you played basketball, well, then you were something, right? And the little ladies loved you. <laughs> so for me, that's, that was what, what it was. That was how I fit in. That was how I felt like I was accepted. But what was it for you? What characteristic or thing did you rely on or do you rely on to feel accepted? See, for some people, it's appearance. And, you know, we certainly find this to be true in the case of Hollywood, where it sort of seems like you know, everybody has had some sort of procedure or augmentation done to enhance the way they naturally look. But you know what? Actress and actresses aren't the only ones that are doing that. They're not the only ones who are finding acceptance through the way they look. Some of us do the same thing. We spend money on makeup and clothes and skincare products and anti-aging cream. And that's just the men. 
<laughs> Took you a minute, didn't you? You know, maybe for you it's your intelligence. Maybe that's how you gain acceptance. You know, you, you feel like you're accepted when somebody tells you how smart you are. Or, you know, when you score a particular score on a test or whatever that, that may be. For some, maybe it's social status or professional status. You know, some other means of feeling like you're accepted. Um, achieving a high status in life and whatever can oftentimes make you feel like you, you've arrived, that you finally can be accepted because you have reached this point, right? Maybe you gain acceptance through your children. Don't these look like doting parents? Maybe it's your grandchildren. You know, maybe that's how you get validated and find acceptance. Maybe it comes from relationships. Now you may wonder, why did I pick this particular picture to show about being validated through relationships? Well, that's Mike Tyson and Robin Givens. She was his first wife. And the reason that I picked this was because I will never forget a comment that her mother made when she said that this would be a good first marriage for Robin. <laughs> yeah, this was when they were getting married. And I just thought, holy cow. So, it, you know, if ever there was a marriage that sort of represented this idea of marrying for, you know, some sort of affirmation or money or whatever, I felt like <laughs> that was a pretty good example of it. But it could, be, it could go beyond being married. Maybe your status is gained from who you're dating. Maybe your status comes from, or your acceptance comes from um, who your friends are. You know, are you with the cool kids? I wasn't. I was barely on the edge of the cool kids just because of basketball. But that's about as far as I got. But I'm laughing now. Maybe you feel like you're accepted if you got a lot of money. You know, for some people, that's what it takes. You know, just this, all right, well, I've finally got enough money. Now I feel like I'm finally okay. And keep in mind, some of this is self-acceptance, too. Maybe it's, you know, did you go to the right school? Did you go to a school that has a lot of prestige? And, you know, that's what you kind of derive this acceptance from, is that, you know, I went to this school that's big name school for whatever reason. Or perhaps your acceptance comes from winning a major award. Let's see. The snap of a few sparks, a quick whiff of ozone, and the lamp blazed forth in unparalleled glory. Oh, look at that! Will you look at isn't that glorious? It's, 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 it's indescribably beautiful. It reminds me of the 4th of July. Turn off all the lights. I want to see what it looks like in the street. Uncle Gibson, Danny, couldn't we talk this over? Honey.
move, move it a little bit to, to, to the right. Yeah, a little that way. Just a little, put it a little more to the, to the right. Yeah, more. That's it, don't stop. Right there, that's wonderful. Hey, Park, what is that? Don't bother me now, sweet. Can't see I'm busy. Yeah, but what is that? It's, it's, a, it's a major award. A major award? Shucks, I wouldn't have known, Dad. It looks like a lamp. Well, it is a lamp, you nincompoop, but it's a major award. I won it. Damn hell, you say you won it? Yeah. Yeah, mind power, sweet, mind power. The entire neighborhood was turned on. <laughs> oh, you should see what it looks like from out here. It could be seen up and down Cleveland Street, the symbol of the old man's victory. If he won that, it's a major award. <laughs> <laughs> That's a major award. See, we all employ some method or some criteria to gain acceptance in the eyes of man. And typically, we do something similar to gain acceptance in the eyes of God. But the problem with this is that none of these, me these means of gaining acceptance, and, and they're all external, right? They're all something that we do or some think that we are, we think we are. Even though it may gain us a little bit of acceptance, it never gains us any sort of true inner peace. But there's good news. Want to know what it is? The good news is that we're, we're not the first group of people to ever have to struggle with this. Can you believe that this was an issue even 2,000 years ago? And so we're going to look at a story today from the Gospel of John because we're going through the Gospel of John for Advent this year. And we're going to see how Jesus was able to bring peace to a woman and also brought acceptance with it. And it was a woman who needed it desperately. And we're going to look at this in the story of um, the woman at the well. And this is from the Gospel of John. It's John 4, 1 through 30. So if you have that, that's all you're going to see. Uh, so if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, or if you want to follow along, you need a Bible. Let's put it that way. Um, so John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. So let's, let's dig in. So it's verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Now let me stop there for a second. <clears throat> did you ever read this and wonder why Jesus didn't baptize people? See, that's kind of an interesting question. I think there could be a couple of possible answers to this. Um, first of all, it could have placed baptism in a strange position going forward in the church because, you know, obviously if Jesus was baptizing, that kind of adds a little bit more of a divine dimension to it as opposed to his disciples. The other thing is it would clearly have been a pride thing, I think, because we already see that some in the Bible and Paul's writings. You know, you've got people that say, well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, I got baptized by Jesus. You know, so I think that's probably why he, you know, told his disciples to go ahead and, and, and just take care of this. So let's continue verse, at verse 3. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, there actually are two ways that you can get from Judea to Galilee. There's a longer route, and then there's the shorter one in which you go through Samaria. And so that's probably why this was taken so often, because it was a shortcut. And they would take it even, and the Jews would take this even though there was this tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. I thought, well, where, you know, where does this tension come from? Why are these two groups sort of opposed to one another? And the short version of that really is that um, when the Jews were exiled from their land, when they were conquered by like the Assyrians, or the Babylonians, and they were taken away uh, in captivity, they weren't all taken. There were some that remained behind. And those that remained behind, um, because there were fewer of them, tended to start to intermarry with some other tribes, I guess, or races that were present at the time. Some non-Jews, we'll just say. And that's, that's why the Jews considered them half-breeds, was because they weren't purely Jewish. So, you know, they did that eventually, but they still practiced the tenets of Judaism. Okay? Eventually, they actually built their own site for worship. They decided that Jerusalem wasn't it, so they built the holy site on Mount Gerizim. And then what happened was when the exiles started to come home, when they were released from captivity, the Samaritans then were claiming that they were the true descendants of Abraham. And so, um, and, and they sort of opposed the return of the exiles, right? Well, you're not the real Jews, we are. And so obviously that created this tension and that's sort of why the two groups didn't get along so well. Um, and then the other thing to point out was that, you know, this is occurring at the sixth hour and in the uh, way that time was kept then, that would mean it's right about noon. Okay, so 12 o'clock, generally the hottest part of the day. So that's important to the rest of our story. So we'll kind of continue now. Um, okay, a woman from Samaria, this is verse seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, <clears throat> it, first of all, it's, it would, it's unusual for a woman to be out drawing water at this time of day. See, normally what would happen is the, the women would come either early in the morning or later in the evening when it was cooler, you know, because they would bring these big jars of water, fill them up, and then they'd have to carry them, right? And so this was something you would obviously want to do when it was a little bit cooler outside. So um, it's unusual, first of all, that this woman would be there at this time of day. And the other thing that is sort of brought forth in these couple of verses is that um, Jesus is really challenging a couple of, of strongly held Jewish precepts here. First of all was against talking to single women. You just didn't do that if you were a Jewish male. By your, I mean, just one-on-one -on -one like that. 
Um, I even read one commentary that said that the whole act of asking a single woman at a well for uh, some water was almost akin to flirting. So you could interpret it that way. The other thing was that not only was she a woman, but she was a Samaritan. And we've already talked about how the Jews did not get along with the Samaritans, and they basically you know, considered them lesser people, and so they just ignored them. So he's really stepping on some cultural boundaries here, right, by doing this. Okay, verse 10. So Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See, she's expecting Jesus to dismiss her or not even talk to her. And yet, he goes exactly the other way. So far from dismissing her and telling her, or, or not even speaking to her, he's engaging her in conversation. And he's doing so in such a way that he's really making her think about what he's saying. He packs three questions into this one sentence that he asks her. And so she's now thinking, okay, well, what's the gift of God? Who is this I'm talking to? And what does he mean by living water? So right away, she's got, you know, she's in, he is engaging her mentally in this conversation. So the woman, in verse 11, says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. Now, Living water actually has a double meaning here. In the physical sense, living water means water that comes from a moving source. So like a spring or a river or something where water is flowing. That was described as living water, right? As opposed to more stagnant water or, or still water, which you would draw from a well. It's just in the well, right? Well, that's what it means in a physical sense, but Jesus is speaking to her in a spiritual sense. And what he's referring to is this offer of new life that he is offering to anyone. And this conversation shows us that that's that means anyone, no matter your gender, your geography, your race, your moral background, anyone. And his offer has really intrigued this woman. She still, I mean, she still does not have really a clue what he's talking about. But she's interested in trying to find out more. So it's like, it's really sort of intriguing to her. And in th this is not in the text, so this is a speculation. But I think there's, there's, she's starting to get this sense of, feel this sense of acceptance with him, right? There's something about him 
that she just she feels drawn to, right? So she's going to stick around and, and not just dismiss him as some crazy Jewish man, you know, asking, you know, saying these weird things. So her response to him, then, so what Jesus says to her in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So what's Jesus doing here? He's letting her know that he knows exactly what's going on in her life. Now I would offer a caution here. Jesus undoubtedly knew the whole story. But see, we don't. This woman has had a life that's been composed of one emotional upheaval after another. And she's had enough husbands coming and going to keep the gossips in the village chattering for weeks on end. Now, we sort of assume that the various marriages that she's had have all ended in divorce instead of... Uh, you know, that may have been legal or it may have been informal. And we don't, there's nothing to tell us that the men died. So we assume that they were just relationships that didn't work out. But we also don't know whether she was equally sinned against in the same amount that she was sinning. We don't know what the emotional traumas were in her background that could have made it harder for her to form a lasting relationship. But the thing is, she knew that her life was a mess. And now she knows that Jesus knows. And yet, he's still here. And he's still having a conversation with her. So then the woman says to him in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. <clears throat> now right here, this woman proves that people back then are no different than they are now. How do I know that? Well, let me ask you, if you've ever been counseling with somebody, friend or done it professionally and you put your finger on the sore spot that they're dealing with what do they do change the subject I don't want to talk about that so I'm going to change the subject and we're going to talk about something else that's exactly what she's doing here he puts his finger right on this whole thing with relationships and she starts to talk about worship And what, what's the natural response? If you're uncomfortable with a moral issue, well, let's start talking about religion. That's a, good, that's a good segue, right? Which is exactly what she's doing. Okay, so she asks this sort of unrelated question to what Jesus has been pointing out in her. And in verse 21, Jesus says this, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's talking about Mount Gerizim, right? The mount that they worship on. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation 
is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. See, part of Jesus' mission was to bring the life of heaven to bear on earth. And so what he's telling her is that from now on, holy mountains aren't going to matter a whole lot. But the woman still doesn't really understand what he's saying. So what does she do? She changes the subject again. The woman said to him, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I speak to you. I who speak to you am he. It's like, me. <laughs> then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So let's sort of summarize what we've got in this story, right? So we have this Samaritan woman who has been seeking her acceptance through relationships. And for whatever reason, we don't know, but for whatever reason, she's failed five times and is now in the midst of her sixth attempt. And I would say it's probably her sixth attempt at being ex feeling like she's accepted. And along the way, as she's been going through all of this, she's been negatively labeled by the entire town. So much so that she can only come to get water at the hottest part of the day because she doesn't want to listen to the other women criticize her, make fun of her, gossip about her, whatever. Look down on her. So she's done this, and now all of a sudden she's face to face with this strange Jewish man. Not strange in an odd way, just she doesn't know who he is. And he's got multiple reasons to ignore her and not even acknowledge her presence, much less speak to her. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't ignore her. He actually speaks kindly to her. And through the entire conversation, Jesus deals with her as a person in her own right, with her unique situation, her unique history, whatever special longings she has. And she <clears throat> emerges from this account a very credible person. She emerges with some personal dignity. And it's all because Jesus treats her that way. And so, really to put it simply, Jesus accepted her and loved her exactly as she was. And he proved it by breaching these age-old social and religious conventions just to reach her. 
Now, what I think the woman at the well learned, and, and what I think it's important for all of us to learn, is that we're only going to find real inner peace when we believe that God loves us and accepts us for exactly who we are without all of the contrived external things that we tend to do to feel accepted. And, I, and it occurred to me that in the story of the Samaritan woman, we can see the fulfillment of one of Isaiah's many prophecies about the Messiah. Now Isaiah 11, chapter 11, is, is one of the most beloved chapters in Isaiah's writings. And uh, you, you may not know it off the top of your head, but you've heard parts of it quoted many times, I'm, I'm fairly certain. Verse 1 begins with the announcement that there is a branch from the root of Jesse that is coming, right? And that's obviously a reference to the Messiah. And then if you drop down to verses 6 through 8, that's the famous lion and lamb scripture that talks about how all of these um, animals that are... Uh, generally not associated or generally not friendly with each other are now going to all of a sudden um, be able to lie down with one another in harmony and peace. And it also contains the, the phrase, and a little child will lead them, which is always very special to us at Christmas time. But in between, there's verse 3. And verse 3 says this, and it's obviously because of what said in verse 1, it's obviously referring to the Messiah. And it says, He shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide by what his ears hear. In other words, Jesus does not use the faculties of humanity in determining a person's worth. And if I could summarize that, I would summarize it like this. God accepts what humanity rejects. God accepts what humanity rejects. See, humanity in the form of her town has rejected this woman to the point that they've made it uncomfortable for her to even be around them. And so she won't come and draw water when they're, when they're around. And humanity in the form of the male partners that she's had have also rejected her. And so she finds herself trying yet again with another partner. And humanity in the form of herself has rejected her. Now this is a guess, but I would think that after five failed relationships in a town full of gossip and innuendo aimed at you, is it not reasonable to think that deep down she might not consider herself a person of any worth. And then along comes Jesus, who shows her that God accepts what humanity rejects. And so what was true 2,000 years ago for this woman is now just as true for you and me. God still accepts what humanity rejects. Do you really understand what that means? It means that we can take off the various masks that we wear and show our real face to the world. 
It means that we can come out from under the cloak of pretense. I sort of had this picture of, of Harry Potter and the cloak of invisibility, right? Well, we have a cloak of pretense that we sort of put over ourselves. But if God truly accepts us for as we are, we don't need it. And we can take it off. It means no more stressing or striving or worrying about our appearance or our status or our money just to feel like we're acceptable to other people. It means that the next time you, you encounter even the slightest hint of rejection, whether it's from others or from yourself, you can say to yourself, God accepts what humanity rejects. You see, where, excuse me, wearing masks, keeping up appearances, and trying to win the acceptance of others is, is really hard work. And all of that extra work can take a toll on you. But think about how freeing it would be if you would just all of a sudden stop all of that extra work that you're doing, trying to gain the acceptance of other people, and be comfortable with exactly who you are because you know that God is comfortable and accepting totally of exactly who you are. It might even seem peaceful. And the peace that's brought about by God's acceptance of her so impacted this woman that what happened? Well, she left her water jar, and I don't, I don't really know what that means cultural-wise. Maybe, the, I don't know if they were expensive or a dime a dozen. But she leaves it behind, and she runs back into a town full of people that already have a reason not to like her and has to tell them that she thinks that she has met the Messiah. And you need to come see this. Could it have a similar impact on you? On this entire church? What if we went around to all of the broken and the stressed and the hurting people that we know and we told them, I know where you can find peace. And it's not at the mall buying gifts you can't afford for people that you don't even really like just to gain or maintain their acceptance. Instead, it's in the last place that anyone would ever look. A food trough for a stable of animals. Because in that food trough lies a newborn baby. Humanity rejected him too. But God accepts what humanity rejects. And now your heart can come home to peace. Amen.
I wanted to uh, follow up with something from a couple of weeks ago. Darlene, you want to come up here, please? Now, if you were here with us a few weeks ago, you will remember that we prayed for Darlene, right? And we prayed for her shoulder. And she is set to have surgery on that shoulder this week, on Wednesday, in fact. But we were talking about it this week, and she was telling me, you know, and of course, your, your initial reaction upon hearing that is like, oh, man, she didn't, you know, God didn't heal her. Well, I would like you to hear, even though she is having surgery, I'd like you to hear what did happen as a result of our prayers. The day that you guys prayed for me, um, I knew that God could totally do a total healing. You know, I totally, I had faith. But at the time, I was struggling. Before the prayer, I was struggling with work very much. I have a, kind of a hard job very demanding, and I, it's hard enough when you're feeling good, but when you're in pain and not doing very well. And since you guys prayed for me, it has been amazing. I went back to doing what I consider a regular workload, if not even greater than that. Um, I, I'm now off on leave as of Friday, but I even worked yesterday. I put in a long day yesterday. God has just strengthened me to work and get every single thing on that huge long to-do list done before I left and it's a miracle that is an absolute miracle there have been days when I've even forgotten to take the pain medicine that's another I, I thought wow so I, I knew there I could see changes definite changes now I can tell that the rotator cuff is still not attached <laughs> I mean I can just tell that you know but the pain level went exponentially down my ability to function went up amazingly well. God has been giving me wonderful scriptures to meditate on and the love. It just I just feel the presence and peace of God about it all. And I know that he could have done, I know he's touched me. There's no doubt in my mind. I know he could have done the whole thing but right away if he wanted to, but he's doing it his way. And he led me to the surgeon supernaturally, I believe. And also, um, the girl that we tried to adapt 40 years ago is coming down to take care of me. And we've never really had a long period of time together. I'm thinking maybe God has this time put aside for us with Paula. So I'm trusting God. You know, I, I know he's in it all, but there's... I'm standing here with a microphone with this arm. You know, I'm definitely better. I do believe they're going to put a screw in and attach it to the bone. <laughs> but there's no doubt in my mind that I was touched by God. There's just, I would go, you know, I, I just was like, wow, I'm doing things I haven't been able to do in months. So I want to, I want to give God the glory. And thank you all. I love this church, and I love, the, I love that I'm loved here and accepted here. I've, I've gone to a lot of wonderful churches but sometimes I was just one person out of hundreds and hundreds, and I don't think anybody would have even cared if I ever went again. You know, so I love this church very much. All right, don't go. Stay up here. <laughs> Heck, if all it is is a screw, we, we could go over to Home Depot and <laughs> B 
be back here in 10 minutes and we can fix that. Oh, 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 okay. So here's what we're going to pray for today, right? We're going to pray for two things. We're going to pray, first of all, now what was interesting is when she was sharing this with me on Wednesday, she said that the doctor is really kind of excited about this surgery because it's going to be interesting, interesting to him, okay? Well, my, our prayer today is going to be that this is the most boring surgery he has ever done. We're going to burst his bubble big time, okay? The second thing that I want to pray for is her recovery time. Now, he has told her that it's probably a minimum of four weeks, probably more like six to eight, you know, in that framework. Well, we're going to pray that that's not even close to that amount of time before she's back and able to function again. So those are kind of going to be our two prayer foci here. Is that a word? Focuses? Um, is, is foci? It is? Okay, good. Um, I hate hate to be grammatically incorrect. Um, so anyway, that's kind of what we're going to pray for here. So if you just want to kind of extend your hand towards her, um, I'm going to just pray for her, and uh, you guys just join in. So Lord, uh, we just thank you for Darlene. We thank you for her testimony, Father. We thank you for the healing that took place. And Father, we just pray right now for this upcoming surgery. Lord, I pray for each and every one of the doctors and nurses that will attend to her both before, during, and after. Father, I, I pray that this surgery will be nowhere near as complicated as this doctor perhaps thinks it is. That it will be routine, that it will be quick, that she will be in and out before uh, any of us really even realize it. And Father, we pray as well that her recovery is just accelerated tenfold, that she will almost immediately regain so much more uh, motion and use and strength in this arm and that um, the doctor will admit to her personally that he is shocked at how quickly she is recovering from it. And let that be a testimony to him of the power of prayer. So we just lift her up to you now and we give her thanks and praise. We give you thanks and praise for what you're going to do. We ask your blessings upon Rich as well as he um, cares for her in the immediacy of the surgery and then for the opportunity that she will have to be reunited with Paula afterwards. Father, we see your hand in all of that. And we thank you for that as well. So bless her. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There was one thing I forgot to give God glory for. I'm kind of a wimp when it comes to surgery and all that. Okay, So I was real careful months ago, and I'm like, I'll do physical therapy for 10 years. Just don't give me surgery. But when I was told, I had to have it. But he has given me a peace. I'm not, I'm not afraid. I mean, I'm not thrilled about having it. I'd be lying if I said that. But I'm not afraid anymore. So if the worship team would find your way back to the front. If we could cut, turn the, uh, now see, I, I'm now, I now say cut the lights too. Yeah, you do. That's yeah, weird. That's right. 
That's true. We, we had noticed how when we moved here, the phrase, cut the lights, was, n we didn't say that in Indiana. You said, turn the lights off. <laughs> and here it was like, cut the lights. I'm like, so now I'm saying it. So I guess I have finally <laughs> fully adopted to Virginia. Uh, what I want to do is if... I, I've kind of got the sense, that as, it turn, as it comes to this issue of acceptance, that for some, it is, it's not an issue of other people. It's an issue of you accepting you. That it's, a, it, it's more tied up in a sort of a self-rejection this uh, overriding thought that I'm not good enough, I'm not this or that. And most importantly, the thought that God could never love me because, 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 because. And if that speaks to anybody, then I would really like for you to come up and um, would love to pray with you. And, and break that nonsense right off of you. Because that's not from God. That's straight from the pit of hell. And we need to get rid of that, if that's the way you feel, because that's just, that's just Satan working through humanity to reject what God has already accepted and died for. Scripture in Romans, I can't recall the actual verse, it might be chapter 5, that essentially says, and yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means he didn't wait until we got our act together. He didn't wait till we got ourselves all cleaned up and pretty before he would go to the cross and die for us. While we were yet sinners means he accepted you right where you are, exactly as you are, with no conditions and no exceptions. God accepts what humanity rejects. And so, as I said, if that issue of self-rejection is something that you're dealing with, then let's take care of it. No time like the present, right? So uh, we're just going to worship. And um, if, like I said, if that really speaks to anybody, then I you know, just encourage you to come forth. You can get communion while we, uh, while we just worship some more. And so, um, Father, I just thank you for uh, your words and for the peace that comes from knowing that you fully and completely accept us. So just bless this remaining time that we have in worship and praise with you. We give you thanks and ask this in Jesus' name.